and welcome to Art and Logic. What the hell is it called? Minimum Viable Podcast. <laughs> Today we'll be talking with Brett Porter and Andrew Sherbrooke, and we'll be discussing a trending topic, the NFT, non-fungible token. It's kind of taken everything by storm. Um, it seems like it's popping up everywhere right now, and so I figured since we are a technology company, and since we also work with digital assets for clients, not these kinds of non-fungible digital assets necessarily, it'd be a fun topic for us to discuss, especially because we might have some different types of view, points of view than what's commonly out there. An NFT, a non-fungible token, is basically a digital asset that can't be replicated or repeated. It's a unique digital asset. So let's say that you've got like a, well, some of the examples out there are LeBron James highlights, right? Where the NBA has been, is sold, I think it was for about $250,000. A digital asset, a token of LeBron James dunking that only one person can own. And so even though there might be highlights out there for other people to see from a game or from you know that, that same experience, there is only one person who owns that particular asset now. And it's uh, taking advantage of the blockchain, which means that it's an easily verifiable token. And so it can't be replicated. And it's something that if people can start collecting. Um, so the NBA apparently has been doing this for a while. It's the, these tokens have been around for, since 2012, which I was surprised to find. Um, but they are right now just kind of taking off. And some people seem to think that they're going to be this wonderful thing for artists and creators because it gives them a direct way to sell and commodify their products um, without having to go through streaming services or without having to go through another distributor. Um, but then there are also possible drawbacks. I mean, one thing that I just saw before we got on this call was that a blockchain company had purchased a Banksy and destroyed the original artwork after transferring it or recreating it as a digital asset. And so that <laughs> I thought that was alarming. Um, I don't know if you can really claim it's a Banksy once you've destroyed it. It's sort of like, uh, you know, this is not a, a pipe. Um, so. That's usually Banksy's province. He likes to destroy his own stuff. Right, right. right. Well, like, oh, yeah, that auction was fantastic where yeah. they bought it and then it got shredded. Shredded it. So... Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's my summary of it. And if there's stuff that I've gotten wrong, please say so. Or if there's stuff you want to add, absolutely do. Um, I think that those are the high points. Um, but I, I think that there are just so many questions raised by the things that you said that, that kind of get hand waved past. Um, I think it raise, raises really broad questions of the nature of ownership. I mean, to say, to make the claim, I'm, I'm taking your money in exchange for you owning this thing, but the meaning of what that ownership is, it, it I saw recently somebody say that it, it's pretty much like somebody taking your money to name a star after you or an asteroid. It's like, really? I mean, you've got a piece of paper saying that asteroid is, is named after you, but is it really? And, and in the same, same context here, what actual legal rights accrue to you as a result of doing this. And it's not clear to me what that is. Um, so is this a method of speculation? Is it a method to express fandom? Um, it, it's in, inherently speculative just because of the, the nature of, of blockchain, which is, you know, on the one hand backed, you know, ha, has claims to have value from scarcity. 
So, you know, in the Bitcoin universe, there's a mathematical limit to the number of Bitcoins that can ever be mined. And that that is the basis, you know, under that theory of its value. Um, but beyond that, with something like this, there's an extent to which you're giving money, so, money to someone essentially for a random number. Right. And the piece that I would add is that there's, um, because of the nature of digital assets, right, you have to have a lot of trust in the person who's issuing it that they're not going to just reissue the same thing. I'm thinking of uh, fine artists. I mean, yeah, you can say that this particular transaction and this version of it is protected by Ethereum, but that doesn't mean that they can't sell the exact same thing with, you know, a different NFT associated with it. And there are... Um, in the fine art world, you know, you, you do a limited series print and you, you know, the artist is writing one out of a hundred on it or something. And there's this trust that they're really only going to issue a hundred of them, but they can't always go back to their work later on. They can run more prints and they can choose not to honor that kind of, you know, the, the implied deal that they have put out there into the world. And it seems like that's a risk here, too. You know, maybe the NBA is going to be dependable and they're not going to do that. But if you're just buying it from an individual, I, I think it does become more like you're saying, Brad, like a commitment to that artist where you're just saying, I, I want to be a part of what you're doing and I want to support your work. So here's some money for you. One of the things that I've been noticing is that the people who are really taking advantage of it right now are already famous. I mean, maybe there are some smaller artists who are banking on it and kind of getting some benefits from it, but it's like um, uh, Elon Musk's, what's his, what's her name? Grimes. Um, yeah. So she sold one for a hundred thousand or something like that. And then the Kings of Leon, I'm not familiar with what they're doing, but I do know that they released their record as an NFT. So when I saw that, and I have to dig into it to, to know more, but it, I wonder, it's like, okay, so are they just selling one digital asset that's going to have a high value? And then, um, there was something about digital tokens for other fans so they can access it. But is there only one person who's actually going to be the owner? Like when um, Martin Shkreli bought the Wu-Tang album. Exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, you know, and, and that sort of elitist commodification tends to be really problematic for me because then if you're an artist who has a broad audience and you start to narrow it down just to the people who can afford it, I mean, does that really benefit you in the end in terms of art creation? It's like... Well, I think that that brings up you know, a related issue with blockchain in general, which is that ecologically, the blockchain is a disaster because the way that all of the systems work right now to, to generate the, the tokens at all, uh, the systems all rely on something called proof of work, which require a computer or many computers someplace to execute you know, a gargantuan number of computations to essentially solve a puzzle. And, you know, the, the first, you know, in each round, the, the first of these, you know, miners that, that completes those calculations is awarded, you know, a token as a, a result of, of verifying the next block on the blockchain. And it turns out that blockchain, if it were a single thing, has like the fourth largest electricity consumption of any country in the world. Um, so from that point of view, it's just consuming and it's designed so that as the as we approach the limits of scarcity of those tokens, the level of difficulty to generate and verify the next block becomes incrementally harder. So 
Unlike anything else in computation where Moore's law makes things get faster and less expensive, this is by design making things take longer and be more expensive. You know, so essentially you're, you're turning electricity into value. So what the, the proponents of these systems say, well, yeah, the proof of work is one thing, but the next thing, we're all going to move to something called proof of stake, which has a different design, which is not as ecologically damaging. But again, from an elitist point of view, from a, a point of view of this is something that, that anybody can get in on, the proof of stake systems are all inherently biased towards people that already have wealth to have the stake that, that they're putting into it already. So it just moves the problem to kind of a different side. It, it's, you know, squishy. So you push down over here and the problem gets larger, you know, over on the other side. How does that work? How is proof of stake restricted? Well, I, it, yeah, who it, knows? Because nobody's really implemented it. And if you go back and you read back, the most of the NFTs that are coming out right now are on not on Bitcoin, but they're on a different blockchain called Ethereum. And if you look back almost to the, the origins of Ethereum, to the point where it's a joke now that you know they're saying ethereum proof of stake coming next coming real soon and you know years and years and years and it, it's kind of held out as i mean it's easy for me to say because i'm not in that world but it, it seems from the outside to be something that is being used as a justification yeah what we're doing right now is, is dirty and messing the world up but it's not always going to be that way and it's like fusion. I mean, fusion electricity has been, you know, on the horizon three years out since I was a kid. So there's a, there's that element of trust, right? And I think that's what Andrew was talking about a bit ago. And it sort of blends into what you're talking about now, Brett, um, because there is this sense in which you have to have an agreement in place about the creation and the value in the transaction and ownership. Um, and, I think what I find interesting about that, especially in the wake of what happened with uh, GameStop, is that it sort of further reveals the puzzle. It sort of reveals like the mechanics behind the illusion um, in that we can see like, okay, the way that we assign value is actually rather arbitrary. And that value as we assign it to something that we decide to accept or not or reject and then we can incrementally add to it, and then we can sort of say, all right, we've decided it doesn't have this value anymore, so we're, we're going to withdraw. Well, I mean, I think it is an investment for most people doing it, or for many people. I, I mean, in some cases, you're monetizing fandom. In other cases, there are collectors who think this is an investment that could later be, you know, retain some value. But that I'm just separating the idea from the actual experience of it. You know, if you're... Well, an investment or speculation, like buying Beanie Babies 20 years ago or Pokemon cards, when, when Pokemon cards. Yeah, I think there is speculation. I mean, it, yeah. Well, I don't think the question is whether there's speculation or not, but the question is, is there anything other than speculation involved here? I would think not. I mean, there's not, there's really, I don't know. I think about museums and it's like, you can, could there be a museum of NFTs? Uh, other than a virtual museum and you know, where you can go and I, maybe somebody's already thinking about it. People seem to be thinking about stuff all the time like that. Um, but well, but I, that, I, that is interesting because you think of cases like Museum of Modern Art where um, their head curator, Paola Antonelli, has started this uh, initiative where she's adding things to the collection of the Museum of Modern Art that can't be collected. So... 
for instance, the image of the map pin that is on Google Maps is part of the collection of the Museum of Modern Art, even though there is no such item. It's, they consider it to be part of their collection. And, and there's this, this huge catalog that she's building of design elements that she's claiming as part of the MoMA collection. And what does that really mean other than as a statement of intent? What, what does it mean as anything other than a stamp of approval, the good housekeeping seal of approval on the Google map map pin? Is there kind of. some IP that changed hands? No, no, no that, that's the thing. Oh. Nothing does change hands. MoMA just says, we accept this as part of our collection now. Did Google say anything about that? Like, we want you to have this as I, part of your collection? I, I don't know, but if you go to, actually, now that they've remodeled, it's probably not there anymore. But it, one one trip I took into uh, MoMA a few years ago with my daughter, there was like a nine-foot-tall silk-screened Google map pin on the wall with a little you know, tag next to it like it was... Yeah, I remember that. A Basquiat painting or something. And, you know, I think when I saw that, I thought uh, I thought it was like an Andy Warhol thing when I saw that. I didn't quite see it the way that you're describing it. I, you know, if you take something that's kind of a common commodity in the public sphere and you just put it in a different space in a different frame and suddenly it's like, hey, this is an artwork. I mean, by, by the same token, the at symbol Mm-hmm. in the email address is in the collection <laughs> and not as a specific piece of work that somebody has created like no, the, Andy the, Warhol the idea is. of yeah. the at symbol I see Angstrom is art I kind of like that um, so uh, when, when going back to the, the NFT I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it with you guys is because of the work that we do in audio tech and music technology specifically and the MIDI 2.0 work that we that you've done, Brett. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of, okay, so we have a lot of, we're, we're enabling digital musicians. We're giving them more tools to create more digital music. Um, when we attended the Music Tectonics conference a couple years ago, there were people there who had, uh, I think it were MIDI devices that, maybe they weren't, there were apps of some sort, that you could basically claim to create music just by choosing different parameters and it would spit out some music and then you could license it and sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I think about that process and then being able to sell that, that same kind of digital recording or digital, digital asset as an NFT, it's like, oh, so it, that's another marketplace that's emerging because this is like a virtual marketplace in a really extreme form because you can have people creating music like me who aren't musicians uh, attaching a, this token to it, you know, rendering into into a token and then selling that. Meanwhile, it, it's like I haven't really, I mean, I going to say this honestly i haven't done the work to be that kind of a musician in sense to sell something but it's but it's enabling this economy and well, but, but even if even if you had and, and here's an example not music but, but visual art um there's an artist i follow she lives here on the east coast helena Seren, who does generative artwork using as a deep learning technique called gener- generative adversarial networks which is one of the you know, machine learning deep learning techniques and she'll train one of these networks on a series of artworks and then use it to generate new art that had never existed before. 
And actually, that was the first time I had heard of anybody involved in what, what you know, they're calling crypto art. So basically, you build, you know, build this machine that just generates artwork and associates an NFT with it and sell it. And it's, you know, you go to sleep and I guess the idea is, you know, the checks just arrive in the mailbox, um, which to me, you know, I, my big fascination in life is machines that make artwork. So I, I definitely don't want to sound like I'm putting that idea down because that's definitely like one of the core interests in, in my existence. Um, but overlapping that with commerce in this way is uncomfortable for me. And maybe that's just because I haven't thought it through yet. I don't know. I think that's the that's the reason I wanted to talk about it, particularly because everything I've seen about it in the last couple of weeks has been surprisingly big in terms of what was being spent it's like i mean how did i mean I, okay uh, grimes being married to elon musk it's not surprising that she would know to put this out there and capitalize on it immediately but then kings of leon i mean what how were they how did they know to do that um i don't know that i don't know how intellectual or how digitally connected they are but it just i don't know there's something about it that's shocking to me it's like okay so this has been around for so long and this was going to take off and suddenly it's everywhere and people are selling stuff for hundreds of thousands of dollars well, and, well even more than that there earlier this week there's an electronic musician named three lao I, I don't know if i'm pronouncing it right um but at least it's not elon and grimes's son's name which i definitely don't pronounce right um but sold an individual piece of, of music art for, you know, three point something million dollars. Like the, the, the total thing, the total take from that day of work was over $10 million all told. Um, so this, this is not toy money. You're right. It's not toy money. And yet, I, I don't know. I think, like you, I find it troubling. There's something very disturbing about it. I guess it's disruptive in a way that I hadn't experienced Bitcoin to be disruptive. I mean, Bitcoin, I think, is fascinating. It's sort of like, oh, it, you know, I looked into it years ago, regretted that I never bought a coin, but now I'm not about to do it. I'm not a, I'm not going to step into the Bitcoin world now. Um, but with this, I just I think about it and I was like, oh, are we actually moving in a new direction? Is this really the beginning of something different in terms of how we create and reproduce and, and distribute artwork? by artists themselves, uh, you know, as somebody who I write, that's, that's my thing. And so I thought, oh, well, what if I were to write a short story or a poem and digitize it and, and made that into a digital asset? Would I actually be able to find a buyer for something like that? And, you know, how willing would I be to just let it go in that way? So I collect uh, books. So I have some first editions. And to me, one of the beauties of those first editions is that I might have a first edition in which there was like a 500 press of the first copy. But its value isn't in that it's only 500. Its value is that there are now maybe several hundred thousand copies of that same book in different editions, different paperback editions. But, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to get something when it was still unknown or relatively unknown. And that to me is it's like the beauty of it it's it's that it's not i mean a lot of these books they have their value not just because of the rarity but because of the the relative obscurity of the work in the beginning whereas with the nft and the tokens i don't see a lot of obscurity being celebrated it seems more of like celebrity being celebrated and fandom like you were talking about i'm thinking of uh, a game 
like uh, where you'll play a game and they'll have a in-app marketplace kind of thing where you're buying stuff from your in-game credits, you know, and and then they have a seasonal offering and you want to get that that bush or whatever the game is using because it's a limited time and it's obviously no different than any of the other things you would buy fundamentally. It's just digital information. Well, on that same token, though, one of the I've done some strange things in the years I worked at Art and Logic, but I think the strangest thing that I ever did um, was I spent uh, a week or two in Hong Kong in the early part of the 2000s working for a client of ours that was building black market in-game economies and massively online multiplayer games and was on they had an entire floor like the 23rd floor of a skyscraper in hong kong and it was filled with hundreds of you know 19 to 23 year old hong kong men almost exclusively with at the time having multiple monitors on your desk was a big deal and these guys would have two or three huge monitors on each desk and they were in game you know, going in to deliver magic swords to people who had spent, you know, hundreds of dollars on a magic sword. So they didn't have to put in the time in the game to get the experience points to actually, you know, level up to that point. And yeah, the amount of money that they were clearing at that time, you know, multiple millions of dollars in revenue per week um, globally that they were getting selling magic swords. But obviously, in that case, our imagination is imbuing these things with this incredible value because they're scarce and they're different, and you know there's something unusual about them in the world of the game. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fascinating phenomenon. Yeah, and before we started the recording, um, Andrew, you had mentioned like the Tibetan and the mandala, and how well maybe that could be digitized and. It, I thought that was really an interesting point well, to make. Well, the sand painting in particular, because the, course, right, the purpose exactly. of it is its evanescence and the you know showing the the clinging that we would otherwise right. have to and, something. And that's what I like when I mentioned to you that I, that was many years ago, and I was at Rutgers, and they were creating a sand painting, and the Dalai Lama came to bless it because it's you're not supposed to preserve it, but they were going to preserve this one. And normally it's like you get the monks down, you watch them, they're on the floor and they're painting meticulously and just an incredible amount, like one grain of sand in a line. It's just just mesmerizingly beautiful. And then when they're finished, they sweep it all away. And this one was going to be uh, preserved. And so when you mention that, it's like, oh yeah, Uh, what if the preservation was done for monetization rather than just for, you know, for cultural significance it's like it's a really i mean it changed it would change the formula it would change the understanding it would change it would basically kind of corrupt the perception within that culture about the meaning of that and the evanescence and but um, the fragility of things is there any ways in which you guys think uh, are optimistic about what this could lead to or you know different i mean as musicians yourselves is there anything that you i think it's great to see monkeys banging rocks together because all sorts of interesting (laughs) stuff comes out and the thing that that i've been chewing on for the last couple minutes is i mean with any new technology it's always important to to separate its use at its inception from the potential that it has you know when the apple ii was first 
introduced, you know, the the IT geeks in their lab coats in the, the clean rooms, this is a toy, nobody would want this, because and at that point, they were right. But and the butt is important here. You know, that was its first incarnation. And it's always, you know, uh, I was speaking earlier today, uh, Microsoft yesterday, uh, for the first time showed a new shared mixed reality system using their HoloLens uh, viewers that allows, you know, multiple people to essentially inhabit the same mixed reality space. So I can be in my office, you can be in your office, and we can be looking at the same 3D model of a building from our points of view. And right now, yeah, the, the quality is ganky. It is. I mean, it just, it is. But we can solve that problem. So trying to diminish what they've done on the basis of it looks kind of cheesy today is dumb. So the the fact that they're using... NFTs today for things that I might, you know, think are, are silly and dumb. It, it's it's that's a bad trap to fall into, I think. And and the answer the other, the answer to your question is does does that mean that it's necessarily going to be important? I, I I can't see at this point. Yeah. Well, I think it'll be exciting to track. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I was I was just going to insult a wide swath of people, as I do, and, and say you know the 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 thing that that gives me pause is that the overlap of populations between people who are assuring us that this is going to be the huge next big thing that's going to take over the world and the overlap of people who've been telling me for the last 30 years that Linux is going to take over the desktop this year are it's pretty much a circle that overlap you know so i i i think the enthusiasm of its proponents is not indicative of its actual value it may or may not but i don't know that that's the key that's that's something you should be looking at yeah i think it might be fun in a few months or maybe a year from now to come back and have a follow-up discussion and see what became of nft and if it's still even out there to talk about i mean it, that's the thing about the, stuff the like boy this. was i wrong talk <laughs> well it could be boy was i wrong could be boy was i right could be like what the heck how did that happen um i, I don't know i think it, it could be very very fascinating just, just to track this one and to revisit it well thank you guys i think uh we should probably wrap it up I, uh, i've got to go you probably got to go and if you're out there listening thank you for tuning in to another art and logic minimum viable podcast and we should have another one for you soon thanks